on this episode of Therapy Bites Art Lab. And patterns are interpreted as safe, and absence of those patterns is interpreted as danger. But healing is going to require pattern disruption. Therapy is all about pattern disruption. Welcome to Therapy Bites Art Lab, where Dr. Heath and his special guests share real-life stories of helping and healing. Fresh from the actual therapy couch, while taking a bite out of common counseling missteps and misconceptions. And now, here's Heath and the T-Ball team. Welcome to Therapy Bites Art Lab Podcast. We are here for episode two. We're talking about spooky tales, scary therapy, and staying psychologically safe. One of the first things that happen in therapy is patients will come in expecting a back rub or fuzzy wuzzies. If they don't, they'll interpret that therapy is not actually safe for them. And the most dangerous part of any psychotherapy regimen is session one because the person may not come back. Um, if it's if it's a, a trauma treatment and you're using a protocol such as cognitive processing therapy or CPT uh, or PE, which is prolonged exposure, and those are the two of the Cadillac treatments for PTSD. I don't do PE, although I do do hypnotherapy for, for trauma. But probably the main treatment I do is cognitive processing therapy. And the most dangerous session is session three. We might get through the first full sessions, but then when we start trying to challenge these patterns that indicate safety to a person, and the brain is leveraged to look for safety. And patterns to most people just think you're living room furniture. If somebody, uh, uh, while you're gone for work during the day, came in and rearranged your living room furniture, I'm going to guess you're not going to leave it that way. You're going to change it right back at your earliest opportunity. Why? Because you're used to that pattern of your living room furniture. Now, your brain has its own pattern of furnishings, and we kind of want it to stay that way. This is why you, if you're right-handed, you use your right hand. You don't really swap them up unless you're ambidextrous, or even if you are ambidextrous, you may use your right hand for some things and your left hand for others. Well, that's nothing but a pattern that you're used to, and the human brain will interpret pattern disruption as lack of safety. But that is the question. Does it really mean if my pattern is disrupted, then I'm not safe? And that's what we'll be talking about today, uh, along with some stories. And I also want to share with you uh, my social media debate of the day. I like to hop on social media, rattle some cages, stir up some trouble, have some debates with these uh, uh, ridiculous social psychology, pseudo-psychological concepts. And I'll tackle one of those. And then also a scary, spooky psychological disorder. There's more disorders out there that you may not have heard of. Some probably are worth something. Some are probably worth less, uh, literally worthless. Uh, but we, we're going to uh, uh, shine some light on those. We'll drag them out from underneath the couch and shine, shine some light on those. Uh, but today's spooky tales, pattern formation. Uh, what have you guys confronted? Oh, we have our brave therapy adventures here. Uh, Sarah, the book nerd, Heather, <laughs> the great gamer girl, and Daring Debbie, uh, who are all veterans of the psychotherapy industry and have seen all kinds of wonderful things and all kinds of dark, gosh, should I say demonic? I mean, I, I have had a few folks who uh, 
uh, we're into uh, demonology and Satanism and things mm-hmm. like that. And yeah, that's interesting. No offense to your religious preference, but that can get into some weird stuff. But welcome, welcome, guys. Thank y'all for being here. What's been your experience? Well, you know, when that's that's funny when you were talking about tackling social media. What popped in my head was mayhem from Allstate Insurance. <laughs> oh, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this, this is mayhem. I could, I, could just see, I could just see you running around like mayhem. But anyway, <laughs> and, and, and absolutely what you're saying is what I see with uh, trauma. People with trauma especially, they'll say they want to have control. They've mm-hmm. got to have control of the situation. It's, it's those patterns because if they have control, it's predictable. And predictability is you know, equated to safety, but, but that's not the case. Predictability isn't always safety. You know, predictability for a lot of trauma survivors, especially those who have survived abuse, predictability is abuse, Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. not healthy, and that's Mm -hmm. not safe, but it's more comfortable because it's what's predictable and, and, you know, so they, they want to have control over things, and and they want to be able to predict everything that's happening. So, like you said, therapy is very difficult because in order to move forward, you have to face those things, disrupt everything, mm-hmm. and um, have exposure to uncomfortable things. Well, it's really kind of ironic uh, because uh, I, I've, I've had patients who have been abused, and uh, I'll just take a, uh, one that's not so quite so uh, graphic, and, and they were made to... You know, like Harry Potter, somebody sleep in the closet uh, or sleep in the floor. And even though they are given uh, a bed to sleep in, you'll often find them sleeping in the floor because that was that was the pattern. And, of course, patterns mean safety. Uh, if you have a person who's been through an abusive uh, childhood and there's lots and lots of drama, and then this child is no longer a child, they're an adult, you'll find them causing you said, you know, talked about mayhem, but they will actually engineer mayhem in their own relationship. Why? Because that's what they want? No. But it is what they're used to. Uh, if, if, if things don't start falling apart in a relationship, they will actually position themselves to cause things to fall apart. If somebody doesn't shun them or abandon them, leave them for some reason, they will attempt to cause that to happen because that is what they're used to, but also that's what they expect. I've had patients come in who people have diagnosed with um, uh, borderline personality disorder. Uh, I'm not a big fan of labeling people. I- I've personally not found other than billing health insurance. <laughs> that, that helps a whole lot. It does help you make money. I'm not sure if it helps a patient a whole lot. Uh, although some people do get connected to their disorder uh, and, and they actually prefer a, a diagnosis, I actually ask patients, you know, how, how much do you want to have this diagnosis? Some people are pretty attached, even offended, if I challenge their, uh, their diagnosis. But uh, people will come in and since they're used to everyone else running away from them, having a, a fight or flight response with them, uh, since they're, what's the terminology? They're being extra or something, you know. <laughs> um, they, they'll come in and display all kinds of unhealthy behavior toward me. Uh, well, 
you know, I've got pretty broad shoulders. I don't, I don't fall for that. I actually call them out and I say, look, I, I think I know what you're doing. You're trying to use me to replicate a pattern. I don't think you're doing it intentionally. I think it is a pattern, but I'm not going anywhere. I mean, now don't, don't bring a, a weapon to therapy that, that won't turn out well. You know, and I have had people bring ther- uh, weapons to therapy. Uh, I had a guy bring a 12 inch blade to therapy and he pulled it out and showed it to me. And I said, Oh, wow, that is a really big knife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, can, can you, can you hand that to me, uh, handle first, uh, you know, so the sharp edge isn't pointed at me? And he did. And I said, Can I hold on to that for a bit? And I opened the drawer, put it in the drawer and, then thankfully he forgot about it, and uh, goodness, as far as I know, it may still be in that same drawer. But uh, <laughs> had another guy. He told me uh, at my doorstep. He said, "You know, I dreamed last night. I stuck a MF and axe in your head." Wow! And I looked down and I at his hands. I mean, you know, it's not like he's holding it in his teeth. And uh, I said, "You didn't bring it with you, did you?" He said, no. I said, good. You should never bring your axe to therapy. <laughs> that won't turn out well. And uh, he now calls me back eight or ten late, eight or ten years later because he, he got better. You know, he, he jumped in, got proactive, took charge of his life. He uh, had been, I would say, on the dark side of therapy because all he got was a lot of people that uh, were afraid to treat him. Mm-hmm. You know, and they kind of, you know, treated him kind of a hands-off thing, and and that registered with him. Mm-hmm. And he saw uh, that they really didn't want to uh, be around him because of their own patterned fight-or-flight response. Mm-hmm. And for me, I just made sure I was safe. You know, I mean, I'm not a moron. Uh, if you come up with a weapon, I'm going to call the magic number. That's 911. <laughs> and uh, I have called that a few times. Uh, I've had uh, people who've been abused and the uh, spouse will show up uninvited. I'll have to say, I'm going to call the magic number. What's that? Well, I'll show them the phone. Yeah, 911. And then uh, they won't leave and I'll get the person on the line and say, yes, we need help here. We have an unwelcome visitor that seems a bit threatening. And they'll say, did you call them? Yeah, I'm not lying to you. I said I was going to call them. I called them and they're on their way you can stay or you know they'll come here to help you uh leave uh, or you can leave either way mm-hmm. uh but the, yeah there, there's lots of dark scary things that happen in therapy and uh one of those or, or most of those are pattern related most of those are influenced by patterns uh what what are some things that y'all y'all have seen well, that actually reminded me of a story of um, somewhere that I used to work. Um, I had a, a client who got upset with me. You know, we were challenging thoughts and stuff. And, and I was on the phone with him and he was raising his voice quite a bit. And he ended up hanging up with me. Well, the practice was whenever you see their psychiatrist next, you give them an update on your most recent session. So I told him about what had happened. And, and he was like, well, you tell that client if he ever talks to you like that again, that he's going to, we're going to kick him out. He's not going to be allowed to be in services <laughs> with our, you oh know, with goodness. our location. Wow. And yep. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, and I had to stop myself because initially I was like, yeah, you know, woo. And I was like, wait, no, that's exactly the opposite of what should be happening. This is somebody who is having, you know, a hard time. They're practicing a pattern 
And that's mm-hmm. something that we can absolutely address in therapy, you know, the, the next time that, that I see them. So I was just kind of surprised, you know, and especially, you know, as a younger clinician, especially at that point, you, you really look up to the people who are, um, you know, have like those degrees or anything like that. And you look to them for uh, to help you understand, you know, how to do therapy well. And I was just kind of shocked and I had to be like, wait a minute, <laughs> what, what is the accuracy in that? I had to do pull a Artie, you know. <laughs> Accurate, realistic thoughts, guys. <laughs> Arties. Accurate, realistic thoughts. Right. I mean, who are we here for anyway? I mean, what message does that send? You can practice your disorder anywhere but in therapy. <laughs> Don't come and practice your disorder in therapy. We're not here for that. Well, uh, as I say many times to patients and to clinicians, uh, therapy is is not real life, uh, but it is practice for real life. Mm-hmm. And the very best place to practice things such as this is in therapy. Mm-hmm. Right. Therefore, if you're the patient and you're angry with me, what a wonderful opportunity. Because, I mean, are you not going to be angry with someone else in your future? I think so. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anger is not the problem. I, I get plenty of referrals for anger management. I'm not sure when anger became illegal. <laughs> uh, I would think we would manage, manage your behavior. For instance, if if you were convicted of battery because you threw a toaster oven and hit someone in the head with it, well, let's manage your toaster throwing behavior <laughs> yeah maybe you can get a soft cuddly animal um or or, or substitute some other behavior you know uh, uh let, let's let's teach you here's one of my new things i saw on a uh, social media sunglass jack who is of course the joker jack nicholson uh found a guy on the street that had a t-shirt and it said hug dealer h-u-g <laughs> hug dealers and and jack nicholson said yep we're hug dealers and I can imagine instead of throwing the toaster oven at a person, why not hug the person? That's not illegal. I mean, I, I guess maybe it could be if they don't want the hug, but but, but ask for permission and then, you know, let's, let's deal out some hugs. But uh, one of my favorite uh, movie uh, clips is uh, the uh, the Batman with Christian Bale, where uh, Batman Bruce Wayne is going around to all the prisons and he uh, uh, meeting the criminal element and a gang comes and confronts him. And the leader of the gang said, I'm the devil. And Bruce Wayne, back in the be said, you're not the devil. You're just practice. <laughs> and I love that. Look, patients listening to this, clients, look, your, your clinician is not the devil. But you're going to meet the devil. And maybe you'll meet him on Halloween, but it's not that devil I'm talking about. I'm talking about the devils and the details of real life. You're going to meet the devils and the details of real life every single day of your life. And your clinician, if they have to play the devil to help you do that, to help you be good at that, then hey, don't 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 beat up the messenger. They're here to here to help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've had patients uh, that I have selectively because I knew that they were impatient, that they had a impulse control difficulty, and that's one of the number one things that I find myself treating are impulse control disorders, which originate, by the way, in the frontal lobe uh, right here. Uh, dorsal, lateral, prefrontal cortex, uh, uh, the center of executive functions. And I'll have them wait. Nine minutes. 
on purpose because it's just good practice. I mean, in real life, do we not have to learn to wait? I mean, why do we think, I mean, why do we assign ourselves some godlike status that we should get our way regarding getting things on time when we want? One of the greatest things we can practice is not getting our way. Uh, what are some other things from the darker side of psychotherapy that you guys have run into? Um, avoidance. Some um, I've heard, I've had some clients tell me that their clinicians um, had told them that, you know, avoiding the issue, like if they've had trauma or um, just anxiety to avoid those, you know, those triggers or to just avoid the situations that cause them to feel those feelings because that, that'll, that'll help them get better. And it's when really, that's just enforcing it. Avoidance isn't, you know, helpful. You can't just write it down, put it on a shelf and it's all better. Like you've got to work through it and practice it. You can't avoid everything. It, it's not helpful at all. Right. And I've actually had, I had a client that um, had been in therapy for years and years. And then finally, you know, he was able to come and see me and, and he told me that's what his therapist told him. He was like, get you a journal. Write it down in the journal, put it on a shelf, and forget about it. And I was like, that. I was like, we might get you a journal and write it down, but no, we're not going to just put it on a shelf and forget about it. We're going to work through that. We're not going to avoid that because that's not going to help you at all. No. I heard one too one time that um, was told to uh, selectively pick one or two things that they wanted to do and take their Xanax and do those things, and that's it. Oh, wow. (laughs) I was like, it's hard. Just, just, just drift off to fairy tale land, and all your problems—they would just be carried away on the pixie dust of vitamin X. Oh my goodness! You're listening to Therapy Bites Art Lab, bite-sized therapy for your brain, with Dr. Heath and the T-Ball Team. The best advice on the net. No copay required. Imagine Tiger Woods' golf coach. I, 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 I don't know if he has a golf coach. I mean, most pro athletes, they still have a coach. And and these, these pro athlete coaches, when they uh, uh, share with their coach a difficult golf swing or a different a difficult uh, uh, whatever in their field in, of, of athletics, the coach says, write it in a journal, put it on your shelf, and just forget about that particular golf swing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not therapy. That is. I mean, I think Heather you know, hit the proverbial nail on the head. That is just avoidance. And avoidance is what's going to keep that problem going. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh we have to, there's three things that we teach that, that are essential. And the first thing is practice. And the second thing is, um, oh, uh, practice. <laughs> and the third thing is more practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. True. <laughs> Alert, practice, practice, practice. <laughs> if you want to get good at anything, You don't write it in a notebook and put it on the shelf and forget about it. You keep on challenging and challenging and challenging that particular belief system, replacing it with a more accurate belief system. And, I mean, it's just spooky to hear about clinicians uh, doing this kind of thing. What what are some of the other spooky techniques that you've heard clinicians talk about? Um, well, another one that I've heard that kind of goes along with what you were saying is, you know, they'll they'll come into therapy 
and they'll tell the the therapist everything or the clinician the psychiatrist whoever it is and they'll look at them and they'll they'll you know make eye contact very dramatically and be like i am so sorry <laughs> that that has happened to you <laughs> and, and that's terrible that should have which i mean if you're being honest and genuine and sincere yeah. and you're like yes i'm so sorry that happened to you but let's do something about it you know let's 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 help you overcome this and uh, something that i told a, a patient who told me that one time was okay well let's let's imagine this differently let's say that you break your leg and the emts come and they they come in they they grab you by the shoulder and they look you in the eyes and they say i am so sorry <laughs> that this has happened to you you know i i i can't believe and their this leg happened. is healed right right and then they just leave they they don't even yeah. look at it they just leave the um, bone and- rejoins the, the broken edges, <laughs> and it mends itself together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And all they've done is said, I'm so sorry for what you've been through. I had somebody one time tell me that their therapist told them that they've never known anyone that's had it as bad as them. <laughs> they, they, they asked me, you know, have, have you have you worked with anybody that's had as bad as me? Oh, just you. <laughs> just, Man, just you. You I take know. the cake, buddy, I'm telling you. <laughs> I don't see how you've made it this far. <laughs> I thought, wow, what a thing to tell somebody. Mm-hmm. Well, coming off of what Sarah said with um, like the, the client telling them their story, um, I had a client tell me that said, I think I've traumatized all of my therapists from telling them what happened to me. I was like, mm. oh, my goodness. Because she was like, they just, some of them like dismissed them and like sent them to someone else because they said they couldn't help them. And it, she was just oh like, I think goodness. I traumatized them. <laughs> no. I was like, oh, my goodness, no. Oh, my. Oh, my. Well, I mean, what what are the possible factors there? The factor may be that that clinician is in over their head. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may not know what to do. But it's also that they may just not want to mess with them. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a sad thing that clinicians can get pretty picky about the level of difficulty patients they want. And they really just want the, the my old neuropsych professor from uh, New York, Elkanah Goldberg. Um, his his uh, uh, teacher was uh, Alexander Lurie, the father of neuropsychology. But Goldberg would call those folks the worried well. Of course, he's from Russia. I think worried well. He had an accent, you know. And he's still alive though. He's he's, he's a great guy, interesting fellow. But the worried well. And some clinicians only want these little vanilla cases. Uh, that's easy. I mean. They don't want the these deep, dark cases that are going to take a lot of clinical energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, get them in, get them out, collect their copay. Right, right. <laughs> you know? Well, and I think some clinicians aren't comfortable with, if they don't know something, just being honest with the client and being like, you know what, I really don't know, but I'm going to find out, and, and I'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Applause all the way around. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things to say is, gosh, you know, I, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we don't. No. Uh, no. Uh, human experience from person to person is so individualized. And there's how many? Nearly 8 billion people on the planet. How would how would we know? But see, that's the point of the therapeutic journey is to collaborating mm-hmm. with that patient. And we bring some knowledge and, and, and skills to the table. Uh, we should be excellent technicians. Mm-hmm. And... But the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey, famous radio guy, would say, uh, uh, belongs to the patient. You know, it's right. it's it's their story. You know, all all those components, uh, worldy gigs and gears and and cogs and wheels. That's that's all inside their brain. And we 
that's why we do the exercises that we do. We we do some stream of consciousness exercises, which is meant to uncover and, and bubble up to the surface of consciousness. Some things that even that patient may not have thought about. And that's just how the brain works. You know, not not everything that you know uh, uh, are you consciously aware? Uh, I, if I were to give it a percentage, I would say that 98.8% of all the knowledge in your brain is, is beneath your level of conscious awareness. Here's an experiment for those listening today. Um, when's the last time you thought about your shoes or if you're wearing them, some underwear? Uh, probably when you first put them on. Well, Mm -hmm. your brain will go back and forth between what it consciously knows and what it doesn't know just to help your sanity. Imagine going through everyday life thinking about your underwear all day. I mean, how (laughs) worrisome that would be. Uh, But your brain subliminates it, kind of sinks it down to a lower level of consciousness so that you could focus on, you know, I don't know, uh, the heavy St. Louis traffic. Uh, or where's your parking space, or what's the the first three things I need to do and I walk in the door at work. Well, you can't do that if you're focused on all this stuff. But see, some of that stuff, some of those details are very important details in therapy. Mm -hmm. It's just that your brain has subliminated them. Let's just take trauma. Your brain has subliminated those trauma tidbits, and the point of therapy is to help them bubble to the surface, okay? Mm-hmm. And not every clinician is comfortable grabbing the psychological shovel and starting to dig. Right. I am. I love digging. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite things to do. Absolutely. Well, yes. and, you know, I, I y'all can tell me if y'all have heard this before, too, but I've also heard um, patients say that, you know, if, if they happened to dare to bring something up that they'd already brought up in therapy before to their therapist, the therapist would say, oh, we've already been over that. I don't know why, (laughs) you know, I don't know why we need to go over that again. It's like, no, 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 no. I tell my clients or my patients that, hey, if you have it and you bring it up again, do it, bring it up again, because Mm -hmm. we're just going to, you know, we're going to keep going. There might be something else about it that we haven't covered, or even if we've covered it 20 times, bring it up again. Mm -hmm. Please do. (laughs) Maybe that's why some, maybe that's why I've heard, you know, what I have heard is, well, I don't understand why this is happening again. Mm -hmm. Apparently, therapy's not working. Oh, yeah. No, that's not the (laughs) Not at all. Not at Mm -hmm. all. Yeah, that is a sad thing about it is, is people will, hear or be told that they're getting therapy in general and and that that makes about as much sense as i've shared my mechanic uh, example just because you take your car to a mechanic doesn't mean mechanic work is actually being done Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, the mechanic may never lay hands on that automobile and for mechanic work to be done that's necessary and in in therapy just attending an appointment does not mean that therapy is taking place. Those right. are two very different things. I mean, right. it's it, it's not like, you know, there's a, a wading pool of water that you show up to every week at your therapy session and you have been baptized into the waters of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I mean, there's, there's it, it's hard work. Right. And right. It, it requires a protocol. Mm-hmm. And after every session, there should be kind of a, you know, 
uh, you should know what, what you've accomplished. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know, you can ask, okay, uh, what are we going to focus on today? And I will tell patients, well, I would recommend through the week that you come up with an agenda. I mean, I'll always have an agenda kind of based on the protocol, based mm-hmm. on my training, mm-hmm. but you should bring your own agenda. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you need, if we need to set aside my agenda to focus on some big deal in your life or some life phase issue, then please, yes, I want you to drive the bus. I want to be able to take my hands off the wheel and hand the, the steering wheel over uh, to you because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's your life. Absolutely. And that goes with our whole topic of pattern formation, too, because if uh, sometimes when somebody has told me that before, I'll look at them and I'll be like, how long have you had these patterns of thinking? And they'll be like, oh, well, I've thought this way since I was, you know, in my teens. And I was like, do you really think it's just going to go away right right away? You know, it's it's normal for it to come back up more (laughs) than once. You know, you've got to rewire your brain and that takes a while. Mm-hmm. Well, neurologically, let me just speak to that just real quick, a little bit of neuroscience here, is the brain tends to do a few things to enable it to store information. And one of those, I mean, it's, it's encoding, it actually engraves uh, data onto the brain cell, like we could say 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. engraved on brain cells. There's a network that like a catcher's mitt holds onto that information. But, you know, your brain is also willing to engrave 2 plus 2 equals 37. Now, that's inaccurate, mm-hmm. but the brain really doesn't care about accuracy. It, it's very willing to encode very inaccurate information, um, encoding. Now, the other thing, though, is neurogenesis. The brain will actually produce more brain cells, neurons. That's uh, why it's called neurogenesis. And those neurons will be tasked with encoding new information or uh, maximizing its grasp on old information. You can actually train your brain to get better at holding on to old, as I've heard it called, stinking thinking. (laughs) And your brain is very willing to do that. And it will leverage its resources of neurogenesis and also synaptogenesis. And that's a synapse is the circuit uh, between uh, longitudinal fibers in the brain. And you can think of a light switch and it grows those two. And uh, the brain will potentiate different types of data or information, which are beliefs, just based on what you decide to tell it. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is what you believe true? Well, it is if you tell yourself it is because you can convince your brain of, of anything. Your brain is willing to believe that not having three cheeseburgers a day means that you're starving. Uh, I've sat with patients and they've told me, and I, I say this as a, shock, as a shock jock to make a point, not to offend anybody. But if it takes me offending you to help you size your life, speaking of burgers, then I'll do that. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll take that gambit any day. But I've had patients say, gosh, I'm starving. I say, gosh, you think you have a long way to go. I mean, I've seen starving people on TV. You look nothing like them, you know. Uh, Of course, I don't either. Uh, You know, pot calling the kettle black and all that. But uh, uh, we can program any beliefs, any beliefs. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is all about patterns. Let me talk about two before we run out of time and we'll wrap up today. But that is the brain is leveraged toward a dent toward 
uh, tending toward false positives. In other words, uh, in statistics, a false positive is saying there is an effect. Something has caused something else when it really didn't. It's false positive. Uh, for safety's sake, your brain is more likely to smell smoke when there's no smoke and no fire. It's more likely to think there's a threat to you when there's not a threat. Uh, we'll do an episode on this, and I get into a lot of social media debates about toxic people, which that that doesn't exist. That's just a ridiculous social media meme, and I'll be glad to have a debate about that, and I do all the time. <laughs> Gaslighters, the belief that others have the power to control their brain and make us think something about ourselves, that doesn't exist. But, you know, uh, your brain is more likely to believe that for safety's sake instead of risking a false negative, which would be it really can happen and you don't think it can happen. But uh, let's just take anxiety. Your brain will tell you something is a threat to you when it's not, and you'll have anxiety. But what is anxiety? Anxiety is a physiological process that is geared to help you run away, run away, run away very quickly in case a grizzly bear is chasing you. But there's no grizzly bear. Or maybe it's a zombie. Yeah. You know, a brain-eating zombie. Well, your brain is more likely to engage in a false positive saying there is a zombie because in case there is, you can run away and all the adrenaline's already there and the cortisol is already there and the blood flow to your stomach has been shut down, which is why you feel sick at your stomach, mm -hmm. uh, because that blood can be shuttled to your muscles to help you run away from the brain-eating zombie. And, and that becomes a pattern. We can actually engineer a pattern of continuous uh, uh, chronic anxiety because our brain is so leveraged toward having these false positives, hmm. which, again, is just a pattern uh, because we're telling ourselves uh, 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 about the absence of safety. We're telling ourselves that we're not safe, and that's going to cause a whole dump of stress-related hormones to protect us in cases even when no protection is needed. Mm-hmm. Okay, just to wrap up, any last comments on that before we finish up our podcast for the day? We have another minute or two. I had a story that came to mind when um, you were talking about clients coming to you with agendas that they've thought about over the week. Um, I had a um, client tell me once that one of their therapists actually told them, well, why did you they, – they had – spent the week coming up with some um, things that they wanted to talk about that were bothering them. And they were like, well, you, if you've got it all figured out, why are you coming to me? <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's not a, it's not a bad question. I mean, it depends on how you follow it up because that clinician could be digging for uh, the person's thought process about coming to therapy. And that's what we do. We try to under uncover these underlying thoughts um, or the clinician may just not have wanted to deal with it uh, or not known what to do about it, or they could have been trained to ask that question. Uh, but I think questions like that, it's really all in the follow-up. When you, when you ask a patient a question, the question behind the question for the clinician is, what are you going to do with the answer? It's kind of like being in court, they, you know, as, as it said with attorneys, never ask a question to which you don't already know the answer. And... Mm -hmm. uh, once you get that answer as the clinician, 
I would be asking myself, no matter how the answer, what, what am I going to do with the information? Right. And what I would do with it is I'm thinking either what they come up with is going to be an accurate, realistic thought, an RT, <laughs> ART, <laughs> or an inaccurate, unrealistic thought, an IUD. There's a an IUD, right. IUTY. And then we'll, we'll plan accordingly. I mean, if they, if it's, uh, if it's, uh, accurate or inaccurate, I might ask them for their evidence. I mean, how do you, how do you know you're, you're, you're basing this on, on what data? And often the data is going to be, guess what? A feeling. Feelings are wonderful. I have them all the time, but they're not good data. But that's a great point. Okay. Well, we thank you guys again for joining us today. We're going to, close out episode number two and we'll be back next week for episode number three you come back and join us then and bring your friends thank you have a great one and remember we first engineer our thoughts and then our thoughts engineer our lives this is doc heath we're out for the day bye Bye, guys hey t-ballers thanks so much for being with us today if we brought value to your day Show us some love by leaving your positive feedback and inviting some friends to listen in and join the T-Ball team next time on Therapy Bites Art Lab. Hey, Doc Heath here. Imagine that you're walking along a dark, spooky road and a werewolf starts to chase you and your best friend, your little puppy, and you're out for a walk and you run as fast as you can away from the werewolf and luckily the werewolf stumbles and you make your way to safety and bolt yourself behind a door. And at that point, the differences between your puppy dog's experience and your experience really come to the fore. What would be the difference in your experience and your puppy dog's experience What is it that determines whether the barking werewolf ruins your day? I can assure you the barking werewolf did not ruin your puppy dog's day. As frightening as that was, your puppy dog will react differently. We'll talk about that on the next episode of Therapy Bites Art Lab.